0: Hey, everybody. Ira Glass here. So we've been working on uh, today's episode of the radio show for a while, and the theme of the episode is tarred and feathered. And initially, we just assumed we'd be using the phrase tarred and feathered as, you know, a metaphor for when somebody is shamed publicly. But then uh, we read a news report about a guy named Jock Nelson, who actually was tarred and feathered. Like, somebody poured tar on him and then stuck feathers to the tar, and not in the year, like, 1850 or something. This was in 2007 seven years ago in Belfast in Northern Ireland.
1: Where did it happen? Was it just around that corner? Just about 100 yards from here. Okay, so, I can, so I'm looking over to where you're pointing, and there's a day nursery, the Scribbles Day Nursery. And that's
0: John that. Ronson, who appears on our show from time to time, happened to be going to Belfast this week and happens to be writing a book about public shaming. So we asked him to go check out where this happened, which, yes, was right in front of a daycare center.
1: He was tied to a post. Was it that post right
2: there that he was tied to that lamppost? Yep. The woman actually wanted to beat him, and people were saying, "Well, you can't very well beat him. He's tied to a lamppost, and he's tarring feller." You know, you can't really oh, insult the injury or injury to the insult. Maybe I should say.
0: John is talking here to Jackie McDonald, who is one of the leaders of the UDA, the Ulster Defence Association, which is a paramilitary group. During all the years of troubles in Northern Ireland, the paramilitary groups were the ones who would beat people up or shoot people on both sides of the conflict. And even though most of the violence ended with a ceasefire in the 1990s, those groups are still around. They still exist. John says that Jackie McDonald looks and dresses a lot like Paulie from The Sopranos. Yeah, he had a big gold chain. He had that kind of Paulie hair.
1: Had a shirt open, you know, so you could see his kind of chest hair. He had one of those leather jackets that tough guys wear. Did his organization do the tarring and feathering? Well, he kept on saying the community did it. But then when I pressed him, he said, Well, we are the community leaders, the UDA, so yeah. Was he there? Uh, Yeah. By the way, were you here the day that they. they I I just happened to be walking past. Now, when he said that, uh, the woman who was standing with him. a local. A local uh, lady uh, burst into silent laughter, uh, which, which I found quite telling.
0: Now, people do all kinds of things in this world that might tick off a paramilitary group. So what does it take to get tarred and feathered? Like, what exactly did this guy do? Okay, well, according to the Daily
1: Mail article that came out at the time, uh, he'd been a bouncer in a city center bar, and he lost his job and he was having marital difficulties, and so he uh, started dealing drugs um, to children, uh, according to the Daily Mail, and he was repeatedly told to stop, but he didn't stop. And then one day word got around a local pub that he was dealing drugs to children in a
0: park.
2: And he was caught, literally, with bags of coke in his pocket.
0: Well, why not just go to the police if they caught the guy with the cocaine? Right. Well, Jackie told me why.
2: The police need evidence and the police need... There's different... There's technicalities that way. You know, and and too many times in the past when drug dealers have been reported, they go to court and they're back doing the same thing the same night. So the community just thought there was more serious than that. It had to be dealt with in a different way. Right. We actually talked about having somewhere in, in the park where we could put... What do you call it? Like the stocks? Exactly, ah. the stocks. We're going to have them there as a deterrent.
0: Wait, wait! wait. I'm just going to. I'm just going to stop the tape. He's saying stocks, like, like in, like in colonial America, like, like where people would like have their hands sticking through wood things, and they would just put, bring in stocks.
1: Yeah, they were seriously considering bringing in stocks.
2: I'ma talk this over with the police, you know, and they said, but if, if somebody was putting the stocks and there was people throwing eggs or tomatoes at them, the police would have to intervene. And I says, well, if the police intervene, then the eggs and the tomatoes will be thrown at the police. So we didn't want to cr- create that sort of situation.
1: And in the end, they decided, OK, well, we'll tar and feather him. So, so what exactly happens when you're tar and feathered? Like, how does it go? OK, so he was told to turn up at a certain hour. Uh, I think something like 11 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning.
0: Wait, wait, they told him, like, we're going to turn and feather you. Like, you've got to show up on
1: time. Uh, they didn't mention the words tar and feathering. They just said you have to show up. You have to show up. On Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, and so he did uh, yeah, I know he was he would have been pretty certain that something bad was going to happen to him, nonetheless, he turned up on the dot of eleven because if you turn up late, something worse would happen to you.
0: back during the troubles, this would happen all the time. people would be asked to show up like this, and then they would get beaten with iron bars or baseball bats or they would get shot through the knees or ankles or hands. The paramilitary groups administered all kinds of punishments. So the guy shows up as requested.
2: And then what happened? He was tied up and uh, a placard put on him and he was tarred and feathered.
1: I asked them where they got the tar from and they said uh, B&Q, which is the local DIY superstore. What's the American version of... That's
0: like Home Depot.
1: Yeah, Home Depot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our Home Depot. Were were the feathers brought over in like a big bag? Or was it pillows? I think it was a pillow. Mm -hmm. Would the pillows have come from these houses just around here? Well, if I'd asked
2: for pillows, would I have got 100? I don't
0: know if you could tell what he just said. He said if they asked for pillows, they would have gotten 100.
2: You know, the local people were very annoyed at what this fella had done.
0: There are pictures of what this guy looked like once he was started feathered, and they are shocking. We put one on our website if you're curious. He barely looks like a person. Like, he's just this blob of black tar and white feathers. You can't see his face at all. It's like his whole head is covered. He looks like the abominable snowman or something, with a placard hanging around his neck that says, I'm a drug-dealing scumbag. So in the Daily Mail article that came out,
1: um, that said that Jock Nelson screamed for mercy as he was being tarred and feathered, and that it was boiling tar, and that his shirt was pulled down over his shoulders so that it would burn. Uh, but Jackie says it didn't happen quite that way, and, and that Jock Nelson was fully clothed. Was he making, uh, was he making any kind of noise as, as the tar went over him? No. No, not,
2: not that I can hear from a distance.
1: Right, OK. So he wasn't, like, screaming or anything?
2: No, no, I think he was happy enough that that's all was happening to him. But it must have had some kind of, it must have been, it must have been terrible. Well, certainly, and it, it was meant to be. Okay. But you have to remember, 10 years ago, this fella would have been found, shot dead up in entry. Hmm. But because of the peace process and people moving on, uh, things have been dealt with differently. And at the end of the day, torn Farm wasn't the worst thing could have happened. It could have been a lot worse.
0: Well, the original story that we saw about this in the Daily Mail said that the guy who was tarred and feathered had been selling drugs to children. John came out of his visit to Belfast not sure that's true at all, or anyway, if it's the whole truth. A former BBC reporter named Brian Rowan, who's reported on Northern Ireland for over 20 years, pointed out to John that a guy like this one, who was allegedly selling drugs, might have been seen by the paramilitary groups as competition for their own drug operations.
2: And while it is presented in this kind of Robin Hood fashion of, of defender of the community and helper of the community. These are paramilitary organizations who themselves are involved in drugs, are involved in crime. This is their way of, of presenting themselves in the light that they would like to present themselves in, that they're defenders of the community.
0: Keep in mind also that the allegation that Jock Nelson sold drugs is coming only from the paramilitary groups, that he never got due process, he got no day in court... We did reach out to him, to Jack Nelson, the guy who got tarted, feathered, to get his side of the story.
1: Uh, we tried. We contacted him on Twitter, and he just uh, sent us a message saying uh, he didn't want to talk to us, but good luck with our story. How's he doing? Uh, he's working as a... He, he left Belfast for a while, went to Scotland, and now he's back uh, working as a traffic warden.
0: A traffic warden uh, gives out parking tickets.
1: And uh, I said to Jackie, uh, McDonald, is he is he back selling drugs? And Jackie Madonna said, look, if he was back selling drugs, he wouldn't be a traffic warden right now. He'd be dead. You've been in prison yourself, uh, so you know from both sides. What, what is the best deterrent? Is it
2: going to prison or is it being tarred and feathered? Well, tarred and feathered, without a doubt. I think, well, ordinary decent criminals, as I call them. Drug dealers, thieves, hoods, whatever. There's something like 47, 48, 49% percent reoffend. You know, the, the, the Tarn father has only had to happen once. There's been no re-offending since.
0: Well, today on our radio show, tarred and feathered, apparently humiliating somebody in public is something lots of people enjoy. And it's also really effective. It gets results. People leave town. People change. We have stories today of people who very much do not want public shaming, and they take action, dramatic action, From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Act one, the hounds of Blairsville. There are all kinds of ways uh, that you can be tarred and feathered, uh, but the effects are pretty much the same, I think. People stop talking to you. You're a pariah. Stephanie Fu has uh, this story from a small town in Georgia called Blairsville.
3: Gene Cooley was planning his wedding, a second marriage for him and his fiancée, Paulette. And one day, he was at work cutting hair, he's a hairstylist, when he got a call from the police.
4: And starts asking me about a shooting. Of course, I knew nothing about. You know, all of a sudden, you know, then, you know, they mentioned about Paulette. And, you know, I just totally freaked out at that time. So... Give me a minute. Yeah,
1: yeah,
3: yeah. Of course. Paulette's ex-husband had murdered Paulette and then killed himself. He'd been unhappy about her remarrying. She'd filed a restraining order against him. He'd been violent before. Police called it an open and shut case. Jean, of course, was completely wrecked. He flew to her parents' house for the funeral. Her family welcomed him into their home, cooked for him, comforted him, until Jean's second day there, when Paulette's dad started acting strangely.
4: I'd kind of slept in a little bit, or I was stayed in the room a little bit. I think it was probably about 9. He made a comment about, uh, Oh, you always sleep this late? And I said, No, sir. Um, he, he was a little on the cold side. And we started to have a little bit of breakfast. And um, he started asking me about uh, rehab. And I said, Who's rehab?" And he said, Your rehab. And I told him, I've never been in a rehab, what are you talking about? And he said, well, what about drug addictions? And I said, I don't have a drug addiction, I don't know what you're talking about.
3: Of course, that's exactly what you'd say if you were a drug addict, so Paulette's dad didn't find that very persuasive.
4: And that's when they informed me that they wanted me out.
3: Gene had no idea where this was coming from, and didn't know how to prove that he'd never been an addict. Finally, out of desperation, he offered to go to the police, ask them to run a background check... Print it out and bring it back to prove he had never been in trouble with the law for drugs. Paulette's father said, Great, here are directions. Go do it now. On the way, he called his sister in Blairsville to tell her Paulette's parents were acting really weird. And she said, Something crazy is happening over here. Things are being said about you, bad things, all over the internet, on something called topics. Topics is a website. If you live in a big city, chances are you've never even heard of it. But if you live in a small town, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Topics was originally supposed to be a local news site, but in practice, it's just a big message board where anybody can create an account and post a news item. And so, more often than not, in places like Blairsville, it's mostly gossip. Blairsville is roughly a mile square. It's got a population of about 650. And that day, dozens of people were commenting on Jean's fiancé's murder. At first, the comments were sympathetic, people saying they felt sorry for Paulette and her children. And then the comments got ugly.
4: It was like five or seven, I believe, usernames, being real hateful, real derogative, real just nasty on there. Calling me a pervert, call, making me out like I was a child molester, making me out like I was some kind of big drug user, you know, just total filth.
3: Someone with the username Calvin asked, does anyone know the last name of Gene, the boyfriend hairstylist? I'm worried because Gene is making his way down to Florida to meet with Paulette's side of the family. I'm truly fearful that this is not the end of this tragedy. Someone named Mouth then said, keep that creep away from the children, he is trouble. What would you do if the perv was chasing your grandchildren? Calvin thanked Mouth for the warning, and then someone who called himself Bugs added, Gene is not a nice guy. He cheated on his first wife. I know Paulette and Gene well, and they were both sickening out in public, kissing all over one another. It continued on like this. People accused him of every kind of character flaw you could imagine, of getting fired from every job he had, of being a liar, a drunk.
4: And, I mean, to make accusations like that, I was wondering who the hell it was
3: did you have any guesses
4: i had no idea of who it could be i've never been on the website like that i've never i don't really use the computer that much so
3: that's a huge understatement gene didn't know what youtube was until i explained it to him it might not seem like a big deal that a couple of idiots are gossiping about you on the internet but in a small town it's different you almost definitely know the people who wrote these things about you and you know the moment you walk outside your house Everyone you see has read it and is talking about it, because in Blairsville, news travels fast.
4: As a matter of fact, um, you being here for just a couple of hours before we met, I could almost tell you where you've been and what you even had for lunch.
3: What do you mean, like just by asking other people?
4: You remember when you called me and said that you were about to have lunch? I'd already had two people call and said, hey, did you know that there's a reporter over here in town?
3: I didn't talk to anybody. <laughs> Maybe somebody who was eating in the restaurant? That's a big possibility. When I walked into the restaurant Gene was talking about, I had noticed that everyone turned and gave me the side eye. The big guys in hunting gear in the back, the tiny neat woman in the front. I sat there awkwardly, wondering whether it was because I was the only Chinese person in town when the waitress came up and asked me for my order. The restaurant went silent to hear what it was. And this sort of talk, it's mostly harmless. But when topics came onto the scene, it took gossip between friends, gossip that people would ordinarily recognize as just gossip, and made it into something more serious. This is Mark Cox. He's a friend of Jean's. He owns the hole in the wall diner in town.
4: You
0: could tell somebody something and they'll kind of believe you, but if they see it in writing, they're going to believe it. Once you write it down, it's not gossip anymore.
4: You know, that becomes truth for what people are concerned with.
3: Other people told me the same thing, like this woman I met in town. She'd heard a friend gossiping about Gene, saying that he was a pervert, a child molester. She thought,
5: yeah, right. I, I remember, I mean, I can remember back things being said, and, you know, I'll just brush it off and go on, but... But when it's written there, and for anybody, I mean, and if it's on the web, um, then you kind of like, oh my gosh, is this true? Could this happen, you know?
3: It puts that seed of doubt in your head, of course. Gene did manage to calm his fiance's parents down, but he was happy to go back home to Blairsville. He'd lived there for 16 years at that point, knew everybody, so when he got back, He was floored by the way people were suddenly treating him, like as if everything online was true.
4: Okay, there was a gentleman that he and I used to pal around a little bit. Uh, Our children used to play together. Um, I walked into a local convenience store and acknowledged him, told him hi. And he looked down at that point in time and just walked on out of the uh, convenience store, got in his car and left.
3: Or there was a guy he'd known for a while, who he ran into at a park.
4: I just tried to have a little conversation with him, and he just told me pretty much get the F word out of here. Get your um, perverted ass away from the kids. So I didn't know what to do at that point in time. I, I just left the... I, I just had to go. I mean, the, the feeling was atrocious. I felt like I was a ghost. Um, you know, when your friends aren't talking to you, when people aren't even looking at you, I mean, it's just, you just it's at your bottom's end right there. I mean, you're, you feel worse than uh, manure laying on the damn ground because people, people always step in manure, but they want to walk around you like crazy.
3: Gene tried to get back to work at his hair salon, but all his clients canceled their appointments. Here's Gene's boss, Tony Smelt.
1: There were rumors going around that Gene may have done some drugs in his past and that we were supplying him, and that my wife and I were drug-dealing pagans. Um, I don't know where that information came from. I, I mean, we just certainly don't do drugs and we're not pagans. Uh, we, we eat organic food, so...
3: Tony's obviously not a local. He's from England. And he was new to town at that point. His business had only been around a year, and he couldn't afford trouble. Tony said people had even called the salon, asking if Jean was there, and saying they wouldn't come in anymore if he was. One woman said she was afraid that Jean might shoot her. So, Tony asked Jean not to come into work anymore.
1: Topics is like a virus. People are scared of that website. I am, that's so for sure.
3: Gene couldn't find another job in town. Two and a half months after his fiance's death, he decided he'd had enough. Gene packed up to move to Augusta, three and a half hours away. But he made one last stop on the way out of town the office of Russell Stuckey. Hi, Mr. Stuckey. Hi, are you Jennifer? Stephanie. What? Stephanie, I'm sorry. You're close enough.
6: Come on. You're the first China lady I've ever met. China lady? China lady. <laughs> okay.
3: Russell's a sweet guy. But he does say exactly what's on his mind. Which actually made him the perfect man to take Gene's case. Because when Russell heard Gene's story, he despised the whole idea of anonymous posters. And all he wanted to do was give them hell.
6: They have no character. That means they have no guts. They have no guts, no character. They lack courage. No balls at all And the... Should I say balls? Anyway. I'm, I'm old school. If i got something to say, I'll say it to your damn face. <laughs> that's just the way it is. And you see these scars on my face? A lot of times people don't like that and they'll punch you. But that's their opportunity and that's the way you do business in this life. You say it to their face.
3: The case was tricky. Topics isn't liable for what its users post and they wouldn't tell Russell the true identities of the posters. It took a year and a half, but eventually a case in Texas went through. A federal judge ruled that topics had to give up the true identities of any slanderous posters. So Russell used that ruling to find out who the anonymous posters really were. And what he found shocked him. The nastiest posters were actually just one person. Calvin, Mouth, Bugs, who were all going back and forth on topics, talking about Gene and thanking each other for their warnings about him. They were all the same woman a woman who'd gone to the trouble of making multiple accounts and then having fake conversations between those accounts. Her name was Sybil Denise Ballou. And when Jean heard her name...
4: I had no idea who it was.
3: Jean was totally baffled. It wasn't until much later that he learned that over 10 years ago, he and Sybil Ballou had both worked at a department store in town called Alexander's. Most people in town call it the hillbilly Walmart, though it's more like a general store. Gene says he only worked there for three months, mostly in the warehouse. He barely remembers it. But Sybil says she remembers him perfectly.
5: I don't like the way he looked at the younger girls and stuff where we worked together. Looking them up and down, lusty look, you know what I'm saying? There's a difference in looking and there is a difference in looking.
3: Sybil talked to me on the phone. She refused to see me when I was in Blairsville. And to this day, she believes Gene had it coming.
5: He's the reason the woman's dead. He is the very reason that woman is dead. He knew how her husband was. But yet he kept doing what he was doing. He come in there with her on numerous times. Sit in the corner. And that woman couldn't even eat for him pawing at her. Being gross, you know what I'm saying? You don't do stuff like that out in public, for God's sakes. People went back and told the ex-husband to get the ex-husband riled up and disturbed enough about it to kill the woman.
3: What what business is it of yours, though? I, I mean, it seems like you're making a lot of assumptions. Did
5: you not understand Or listen to what I said. He brought it upon himself, in my opinion.
3: Are you proud of what you did?
5: Am I proud of what I did? I'm proud of standing up for what I believe in. For what I know. I'm proud for telling the truth.
3: Jean sued Sybil Ballou for libel and defamation of character. Again, here's Gene's lawyer, Russell Stuckey.
6: So I had Mrs. Ballou on the stand, and to show what kind of legal scholar she is, I said, she kept telling us about the First Amendment protected her. And I said, Miss, Miss Ballou, you mentioned the First Amendment. Do you know what the First Amendment says? What is the first word in the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States of America? And she didn't know that. Here's a flash for you morons. The First Amendment does not cover all speech. Defamation is not ever
3: protected speech. Russell's right. Libel is against the law, and if the lies hurt the victim financially, that person is entitled to receive payback. The jury ruled that Sybil Denise Belou owed Jean four hundred four thousand dollars, with two hundred fifty thousand dollars in punitive damages. It was the first successful lawsuit lodged against an anonymous topics poster.
6: God Almighty. He went home that night feeling like a man.
3: It wasn't a complete triumph. The case was expensive, and Gene will probably never see any sort of reimbursement for that. To this day, Sybil has not paid any of the $404,000 to Gene. Russell says she just does not have that kind of money. But Gene got what was most important to him. He moved back to Blairsville after the case. Back to his family, his friends, his kids... And of course, everyone had heard about the verdict by the time he got back. And people started talking to him again, like nothing had happened. Like that guy in the convenience store? The guy who walked out when Gene tried to talk to him?
4: I saw him the other day at a convenience store and uh, uh, he greeted me. Hi Gene, how you doing? It's good seeing you. Shook hands and um, I'll talk to you later. I'll see you around.
3: He must have had some sort of feeling like, oh, now you want to talk to me. Yes. (laughs)
4: Yeah, that is kind of how I did feel, to be honest with you. I see everybody a lot differently now that I've been through all this. Um, I just look at different people more cautious instead of um, letting them into my life, letting them into my heart. You know, I I never thought that people could be so cruel.
3: I asked around town to see if stories like Jean's were common. And almost everyone knew someone who had been hurt by posts on topics. One woman told me that someone wrote a post saying her coworker was having an affair. She said her coworker's marriage fell apart because of it, and her kids were teased at school. Another said her husband was slandered, which hurt the family business. But after Jean's case, after people found out they could sue for slander, lots of people started to call up lawyers. Russell Stuckey says he probably gets a call every month.
6: Normally, you're talking about bored housewives who are just gossip mongers, basically. But but it, it is an epidemic. I have caught lawyers. I caught a judge. I've caught doctors, a dentist, a state, a, a, a state representative. I found out in a heartbeat who these people were. I sued them. And they all you ought to hear them scream and cry. Uh, let me go. Let me out of this. You did it.
3: If you go onto Blairsville's Topics page today, there are only a dozen or so regular posters left. It's considered an embarrassment now, and nobody really reads the gossip anymore. Or anyway, if they do, nobody wants to admit it.
0: Stephanie Fu is one of the producers of our program. Coming up, we move from a story where the internet is causing huge problems in somebody's life to a story where the internet is actually helping somebody solve a huge problem. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, tarred and feathered stories of public shaming and people trying to avoid being publicly shamed. We have arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Help Wanted. So this story is about a group that's pretty universally reviled. I think if there ever was a group that people would want to tar and feather, this would be the group, and that's pedophiles. Though I have to say, before we start, this is not the story you usually hear about pedophiles. Reporter Luke Malone met somebody who has those feelings for young children and definitely does not want to act on them, and has had to cobble together his own way to deal with the problem, which raises the question, is there a way to treat pedophiles? Could there be a way to treat pedophiles? A warning uh, before we start, this story is definitely not for kids. Most of the names have been changed, and two of the people in the story have asked to have their voices altered. Also, uh, though there's nothing graphic in this story at all, victims of child sexual abuse should consider this a trigger warning. Everybody else, I will say, I have never heard anybody talk about these issues the way that the people in this story talk about them. I feel like I came out of hearing this story understanding something I really did not know before. So, here's Luke Malone. My interest
7: in pedophiles began in the wake of the Jerry Sandusky trial. He had just been sentenced on 45 counts related to child sex abuse. It got me thinking about how all this starts, and if there's a way to prevent it. I mean, Sandusky wasn't born a 68-year-old child molester. How are the pedophiles when they start thinking about kids this way? Do they ever want to do something to stop themselves? And if they do, who can they turn to? I spoke to experts and dug around online. I came across a site, a group of people who acknowledge their attraction but want help dealing with it. Most of the men I spoke with first noticed an interest in children when they were about 13 or 14. I had no idea. I asked how they reacted when they first knew something was up. For most of them, this was going back 40 or 50 years, and I realised that I needed to speak with younger guys, ones who are going through this right now. I asked the men if they knew anyone like that. And a week or so later, I got an email. My name is Adam at Red. I'm 18, and I'm the leader of a support group for pedophiles around my age. I would be very happy to talk with you. Adam is now 19. Just to remind you, Adam isn't his real name, and his voice has been altered to protect his identity. But even knowing he'd be anonymous, he was uncomfortable.
8: Uh, you know, I'm nervous. Why? Why? just don't think I'm a very vulgar person. It's even weird for me to say it out loud. You know, it's something I type probably, uh, you know, 50 times a day, just, you know, chatting uh, with some people online. But uh, actually saying it out loud is, you know, not very easy for me.
7: Do you see yourself as a pedophile? Uh, yes. And have you ever acted on your attraction? No. Here's the first of many distinctions I wasn't clear on when I first met Adam. And it's an important one to make. Technically, you don't have to act on your desires to be a pedophile. Pedophilia marks the attraction, not the behaviour. Adam doesn't want to act on his attractions. Adam is self-diagnosed, as is everyone in his online support group. They go by the medical definition of pedophilia found in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, basically the Bible of the American Psychiatric Association, which says that, in order to be a pedophile you have to harbour sexual fantasies about or engage sexually with a prepubescent child for six months or more and you have to be 16 or above and more than five years older than the child you also need to have either acted on these urges or the fantasies must cause distress or difficulty guys like Adam hit puberty and discover they're attracted to little kids and what's remarkable is that they have to navigate that all on their own with no frame of reference. Everything they're going through, they have to figure out for themselves. At like 11. I was surprised when Adam first told me the specifics of his attraction. It was hard to relate to, and so you're prepared, difficult to hear. He's most attracted to kids between the ages of eight and three. He was 14 when he started watching porn. Porn involving children. For privacy, he found a way to connect an old computer that he had in his room. Before long, he was downloading it on a daily basis. He couldn't believe how easy it was.
8: It was exhilarating. That's the most uh, accurate thing I could say about it.
7: I think for people, you know, who were listening to this, this show, when they hear that, it's going to be kind of hard for them to understand, you know, what you're feeling, and I really want them to. So can you tell me, like, did you have any concerns for the kid in the videos at this time? Like, did it occur that someone else was abusing them by making these videos?
8: No. First off, the the first pornography I came across, uh, I don't think it even involved adults. You know, what I thought is, you know, I'd, I'd like to do these types of things. Uh, so, you know, it's great that I can watch other people, you know, who are closer to my age range do these types of things. I just see, you know, two kids doing something that uh, I fantasized about doing. So, you know,
7: I'm one of the kids. Remember, he was 14.
8: And, you know, it was a little while later as, you know, I started watching the stuff, uh, you know, more and more when I kind of realized that, you know, I was getting older, uh, and it wasn't some phase I was going through. But, you know, the the children i was interested in weren't getting older you know to follow along with me but they were actually getting younger
7: did it strike you as wrong
8: at that no. age no <laughs> you know i knew i knew it was illegal um i knew it was considered wrong but i i did not know why it was considered wrong figured it something that wasn't allowed I'd been using it for two years uh, before I started to think these children are are real people and, you know, they could potentially be hurt, you know, with this.
7: The way Adam figured it out was particularly brutal. He was 16 and he came across a video he wanted to unsee. There's no easy way to say this. It involved a very small child, an 18-month-old.
8: I remember uh, thinking that I wanted to reach through the computer screen and kill the person. I was just so horrified at what I saw. You know, at that point, you know, I knew knew something was really wrong.
7: He began reading up on child abuse and was upset at what he learned. He decided he wanted to stop watching child porn, and he needed help if he was going to do that. For that help, Adam turned back to the internet. He posted on a mental health forum, explaining his situation and asking for advice. Two women who were child abuse survivors befriended him. With their help, Adam says he stopped watching porn, but in its place grew a deep depression. It wasn't like he'd stopped having sexual thoughts about kids. He says he felt like a monster for having viewed the videos, but also just for having the attractions. Some days, He thought about killing himself. He didn't know what else to do. He was 16. He wanted to talk to someone. So he started with a cautious letter to his mum. Dear Mummy, it begins. I am writing this letter to you as I cannot bring myself to say what I need to say to you, to your face. It would simply be too painful for me. I am always overshadowed with feelings of depression, guilt and shame. I am really sick and tired of covering these feelings up. I want you to let me see a psychologist. I understand that you probably have a lot to ask me, but I need some time to get my head wrapped around things. Love, Adam. He didn't explain the source of the problem, and his mother never asked. Instead, she made him an appointment at a local therapist for a week or so later.
8: I remember it was a Friday morning. Uh, Very early in the day, I was her first patient. Um, We got there even before she got there. And, you know, I was... I was just very nervous, you know. I knew exactly what was coming. I, I'd known for so long, you know, that I was going to walk in there and, you know, what I was going to say. Um, And, you know, I'd, I'd rehearsed it in my head.
7: And what was this script you'd been playing over and over in your head?
8: I'm a pedophile, and I'm addicted to child pornography. And, you know, I, I remember I, I walked in there, and, you know, we started talking, uh... And then, you know, she kind of said, you know, so what are you here for? And I said, well, I'm, I'm very anxious. And, you know, she said, well, why are you anxious? Uh, and, you know, my, my heart was beating. I'd never been so uh, so terrified in my life. Um, but, you know, I, I uttered the words. I said, you know, well, this is, this is difficult to say, uh, but I'm a pedophile and I'm addicted to child pornography. And... I saw kind of a look of horror on her face, and she asked me to repeat that. She, she must have thought that she misheard me, you know, for something like that. But, you know, I repeated it, Then, you know, immediately uh, she went from being, you know, this very nice, gentle person
7: to very
8: harsh and critical.
7: What did she say to you?
8: Well, she, she raised her voice, um, telling me, you know, like, this isn't okay, and, you know, we, we talked we talked about it a bit. Um, you know, I I mentioned that, you know, at that point I'd been, I think, eleven weeks uh clean of uh, child pornography. But, you know, I was one well, I, I was terrified um, you know, the whole time. And uh you know, I remember she tried, you know, talking with me about um about why why I have these attractions and um and uh, you know, she was she was obviously convinced, you know, that well, I, I had trouble talking with people my own age. So, you know, I was I felt less judged by younger kids and that's why I was interested in them. Um and that's you know, it's apparently um a very common thing for uh for, you know, therapists who aren't at all trained in this, you know, area to to think.
7: So she um, didn't even believe that you were a pedophile, just that you couldn't kind of make it with kids your own age, essentially, yeah? Is that what you're saying?
8: Yes. Yes.
7: And what did you say to her in response?
8: Oh well you know i I disagreed. I said, you know no i i I really firmly believe that's not the case you know um I know what I'm attracted to, and it's not like i'm you know i I had friends. it's not like I didn't have a single friend you know I said, look you know these these attractions are you know more intense than uh they are towards any adult i you know I've ever met or seen, and I'm really confident that it's not just you know, being scared to talk to people my own age.
7: Was it kind of weird or frustrating kind of disclosing this massive thing about yourself and then having to kind of just really drive it on home and prove it to her?
8: Yeah, it was definitely... um, It was annoying. Um, But, you know, I'll I'll tell you that the feeling that uh, overcame me most the whole time was uh, that I was being judged. Um, That's definitely what I felt most when I left later, um, you know, I considered writing an email to her, apologizing for dropping, you know, such a bombshell uh, on her. And I saw her again.
7: And what happened in that second session?
8: So she was a little calmer. You know, she'd obviously had some time to think about it. She basically told me, you know, pretty much instantly, you know, that she couldn't help me. Um, and... You know, she said that she'd looked around, but she couldn't really, you know, find much. Um, and then, you know, within a few minutes, she asked um, how I'd feel if she told my mother, you know, about what was going on. So, you know, first, uh, you know, my, my heart obviously started beating much faster, and, you know, I, I became incredibly anxious. And, um, you know, I said, uh, you know, I, I, I really, I, I don't want to do that. So she, uh, you know, she left the room for a minute and then came back in with my mother.
9: And I sat down, and the first thing that I recall the therapist saying is, we've got a problem.
7: This is Adam's mom. Her voice has also been altered.
9: The therapist looked at me, and I, I can't remember her exact words, but it was something like,
8: adam is uh addicted to pornography and then she paused for a little bit and then she said you know a very specific type of pornography um then you know, she said it's child pornography
9: and she continued to say that she couldn't see him we then talked a little bit not details about what had been going on um And Adam did not contribute at all. He sat there just shaking and looking at the floor. And I do remember that she then turned to Adam and said, how do you feel? And he said, I feel like I'm going to throw up.
8: You know, my mother, I'm sure, reacted the the best I really could have hoped for. Um, You know, she kind of put her arm on my shoulder and, you know, squeezed a little bit, and, you know, she seemed to be supportive. I'm sure she was in shock and probably kind of horrified, but, you know, at least she was able to hide that. And the the fact that she was able to do that, um, it, it meant so much to me.
9: And I looked at him, although he wouldn't give me eye contact, I looked at him and I said... Adam, we're going to help with this, whatever it is. We can help with it. And don't worry, I'm with you.
7: On the car ride home, Adam told her that he wasn't just attracted to children, but also to adults.
8: You know, and I explained that I'd never, uh, you know, I'd never done anything to hurt someone before, um, and that I never would. Uh, you know, do something to hurt someone.
9: When I had moments to be alone afterwards, I was very devastated in realizing the enormity of what we were dealing with. I was shocked. It was the last thing that I could have fathomed that was a problem for him. There were absolutely no signs I have no earthly idea how Adam may have developed his attraction to children.
7: She and Adam both say he wasn't abused. His home life was stable. He had good relationships with his siblings. Adam's mum did find him a new therapist, one who specialised in porn addiction. This one didn't normally treat minors, and he was reluctant to take Adam on. She had to plead with him to accept her son as a client. He eventually agreed. She says until our interview, his two therapists are the only people she's spoken to about Adam's attractions. She hasn't told a friend, not a therapist of her own, not her husband. Right now, if a pedophile shows up in a therapist's office wanting treatment, it puts a therapist in a difficult situation. First, there are no guidelines on how to treat pedophiles who haven't offended, There's a lot of confusion in the field about how to handle them. Also, they're in a tough legal position. If a therapist thinks someone poses a threat to a child, they're legally obligated to turn them in because of mandatory reporting laws. They can lose their license if they don't. So when it comes to counselling a pedophile, therapists have to gauge how likely that person is to act. They're in a sticky situation where they have to make a judgement call about how dangerous someone is. Professor Elizabeth Letourneau is one of the top researchers on child sexual abuse in the world. She's done this work for 25 years. She says the great thing about mandatory reporting laws are that they've brought to light lots of crimes against children. But as it got more popular, she saw it affect the number of people reaching out for help.
10: Self-referrals for help really dried up, and people uh, watched helplines just go silent um, because folks are too afraid to reach out for help. The consequences are, are too high.
7: Professor Letourneau is the director of the Moore Centre for the Prevention of Child Sexual Abuse at Johns Hopkins University. And it's with that mandate, the prevention of child sexual abuse, that she's pushing hard for research into people like Adam. Amazingly, there's very little research on pedophilia. We don't know much about the sexuality of adolescents, let alone what might make someone a pedophile.
10: It is a gigantic black hole in science.
7: Among the things we don't know... We don't know that there's a connection between being abused and developing an attraction to kids. Crazy, right? We don't know what's normal when it comes to the sexual development of children. It might be normal for a 12-year-old to be attracted to a six or eight-year-old. Another thing that has not been researched in depth is if having an attraction to kids makes it more dangerous to be around them. On its face, it seems obvious, but there is no evidence to support it. The research that we do have and this is from a very small sample size, suggests that pedophiles are more likely to be shorter, left-handed, and have a lower IQ. Another study says that being knocked unconscious before the age of 13 may be a factor. It shows just how little we've scratched the surface. <music> for years, Latono has been trying to change all this, to get money for research and for prevention programs. But there's not much money for that, funders don't want to be associated with pedophilia research, the stigma is too great. Even someone like Letourneau, who wants to do this research in order to prevent children from being abused, has been called a pedophile sympathiser simply for advocating these programs.
10: If we can prevent this, we can prevent a lot of harm and a lot of cost. Um, And we we just don't we just don't. It's, it's nuanced. It's difficult to wrap your head around. It's a lot easier to say these guys are monsters. Let's put them in prison. Let's put them on a registry. Let's put them in civil commitment facilities and forget about them.
7: The place the research is most solid is the numbers. Studies suggest that an astonishingly large number of men are pedophiles. A respected survey by Michael Seto, director of the Forensic Research Unit at the University of Ottawa, found that 3% of all men have sexually offended against a prepubescent child, though not all these men would be considered pedophiles. But he goes on to estimate that 1-3% to of men would meet the diagnostic criteria for pedophilia, which equates to anywhere between 1.2 million and 3.4 million pedophiles in the US alone. That means there are lots of people out there who are presumably try not to offend, with nobody to turn to for help. There's almost no research to explain why they are the way they are, and no known treatment. Which is how a teenager might conclude that his best option is to invent his own way forward. At 17, Adam started searching online for other guys like himself, young men struggling to deal with their attraction to kids, and some responded. They got to talking online, and soon there were a bunch of them communicating on a daily basis. Before long, Adam realized that he had inadvertently formed a support group for young pedophiles. There are currently nine members, ranging in age from 16 to 22. Eight men and one woman. They communicate in the same way that any bunch of teenagers do. G-chat, text, email, the odd phone call or video chat. And there's usually at least a few people online each night. I've talked to five of them and met three of those in person. They all said they're glad to have found the group. And for most, it's the only outlet they have. Everyone I've spoken to has a story about how the group saved them. A 22-year-old college student told me this one.
10: There was a time when uh, when I was really running out of hope for the future. I felt, you know, I was unemployed, and I felt like no one was going to give me a shot, and I felt like I had literally no shot in life, and I, I kind of wanted to kill myself. I didn't do it. The first thing I thought of was, especially Adam in specific, but the rest of them as well, I I couldn't let them down like that.
7: The governing principle of the group is that you can only be a part of it if you agree that it's wrong to have sex with kids. There are other pedophile support groups online who feel the opposite, who advocate for the abolishment of age of consent laws. Others suggest that molesting children is wrong because it's illegal, but stop short of taking a moral stand. Adam's group absolutely takes a moral stand, a few times he's found himself trying to convince potential members of the group that having sex with children is wrong, and occasionally Adam has to turn someone away.
8: There was one time, um, someone someone came in, um, and he admitted to me pretty much right away that he'd uh, he'd done uh, some sexual things with a uh, with a five year old kid, um, and you know right then then and there I said you know we can't have you, um, you know. Y- First off, they're a risk, but what's more is I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll am i admit I have a bias. Um, I think we are better people uh, than those who, you know, who go out and uh, hurt kids.
7: Did you tell him that?
8: Uh, I explained to him, you know, to the best of my ability, that what he did was very wrong um, and that the most noble thing he could possibly do would be to... Uh, tell the kid's parents, um, so that at least that kid could get the help, you know, he might need.
7: And what was his response?
8: Uh, something like maybe.
7: In a different world, this person would be talking to a professional, not a 19-year-old, with no training at all. Or maybe this person would just be in prison. Here's another important distinction. Eight out of the nine in Adam's group say they are non-exclusive pedophiles, which means they are also attracted to their peers or adults, in addition to kids. That's important because researchers like Elizabeth Letourneau think it might be possible to push people like that to become more attracted to people their own age, if you start young.
10: Yeah, so through uh, hanging out with, the, with peers more often, engaging in fun things with peers more often, really increasing that, I really believe at least for some kids, some portion of kids who are sexually attracted to children, it's changeable. I don't want to start with the premise that it's impossible.
7: When I first started talking to Letourneau a year and a half ago, she told me that in her 25 years in the field, she'd talked to lots of young guys who've abused children, but she'd never spoken to a pedophile who hasn't, which I found pretty incredible. I told her about Adam's group, and she asked if I could put them in touch. She's since spoken to several of them, and has been talking to Adam regularly. And she started to notice patterns. Patterns that she can use to inform a treatment plan that she's getting off the ground.
10: You know, before talking to, the, to Adam and the other young men, I didn't know when... When it really crystallized for them that this wasn't going away, I didn't know what the experiences were. I had no idea about the the deep depression and the self-loathing and the fear that really characterized all of their adolescence.
7: While Letourneau was just starting to learn about what causes pedophilia and develop methods for treatment, Adam doesn't agree that he can be fixed. He doesn't hold out hope for the possibility of becoming something other than a pedophile. It took him years to figure it out in the first place.
8: (laughs) The truth is... I know what my attractions are. I know they're there. By every definition of the medical term, I am one. Sometimes you really just know these things.
7: Adam says being a pedophile is something he'll spend the rest of his life battling. But he's committed to managing it. He's thought ahead to his future in a way that most 19-year-olds don't.
8: You know, I'd I'd like a partner, obviously. You know, the the thought... Thought of having a kid is very scary. Um, I don't. I'm not convinced I, I could ever allow myself to do that. Um, you know, as much as I may want it. Most, I think most people, you know, want kids um, at some point in their lives, and it's something that. Well, I'm not saying I never will have. It's something I don't think I will have. You know, for I guess for both of our safeties.
7: Imagine being a teenager and being told never to act on your sexual feelings, ever, for the rest of your life. That's what we're asking of these people. At the moment, there is no clear plan for how to do that. But maybe there should be.
0: Luke Malone. More of his reporting on this topic will appear next month on Medium.com. I know it's hard living in the scene. Feel like a monster, yet you're being. The program was produced today by Brian Reed, with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Sean Cole, Stephanie Fu, Hannah jaffe Walt, Sarah Koenig, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Menhevar, Robin Semien, Alyssa Shipp, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder. Production help from Allison Davis. Seth Lind is our operations director. Emily Condon's our production manager. Elise Bergerson's our administrative assistant. Adrian Matowitz runs our website. Research help from Michelle Harris and Julie Beer. Music help from Damian Grafe, Rob Geddes, and Anthony Roman. Special thanks today to Chrissy McGlinchey, who helped produce our story about the tarring and feathering in Belfast. Thanks to Lou Teddy at String and Can, to Benjamin Irvin, Jerry Maserati, Tally Woodward, Alyssa Solomon, David Haydew, Davy Nathan, and Tammy Wade in the Minneapolis airport. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where, just a reminder, we have the photo of the man who was tarred and feathered this week. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Thanks, as always, to our program's co founder, Tori Malatia. You know, he used to own an antique store, but it it just didn't work out because he would say things to the customers like,
5: There's a difference in looking, and there is a difference in
0: looking. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. And I'm alright, 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 except for just a few things. And I'm alright, tonight.